Hey world, Dr. Scott Sigmund here. Today's episode of the Ortho Show podcast is going to be sponsored by OrthoLaser Orthopedic Laser Centers. I am absolutely convinced that the effects of this pandemic are going to linger for months, if not years. The way in which we deliver medical care is going to be changed forever. We have no idea when the operating rooms are open. There's going to be a long line for elective surgery. And when they do reopen, we're not even sure if we're going to be at full capacity. Basically, there's going to be a huge backlog of elective joint replacement for the elderly. There's also going to be many young patients that are going to say, you know, I just can't do surgery right now, doc. I need to get back into the workforce. I need to earn some money. I need to provide for my family. So basically, we're going to have to be forced as, as docs to find alternative treatment options for our patients for acute and chronic pain. OrthoLaser, orthopedic laser centers powered by MLS M8 laser technology is going to be that solution. Uh, the FDA cleared MLS M8 laser treatments are painless and only take about 10 minutes. So here's the deal, everybody. Our ortho laser centers are currently open in Boston, Newburgh, New York, Lexington, Kentucky, Pensacola, Florida, and soon to be opening in Atlanta, Hartford, and Portsmouth, New Hampshire. These franchise opportunities are available at this time all across the country. So whether you're an interested patient or a doctor who wants to know more, please visit www.ortholaserwithaz.com. Again, www.ortholaserwithaz.com to learn more. From Medical Media, this is The Author Show. Hello, world. It is Dr. Scott Sigmund here, your original opioid-sparing surgeon, healer of knees and shoulders left and right. Happy to be able to host another episode of the Ortho Show podcast. We have an amazing guest today. We're trying to bring you experts uh, from around the world that will truly give you uh, the, the real information direct from experts. So we have Dr. Paul Paula Cannon, who is a distinguished professor in the Department of Molecular Microbiology and Immunology at the University of Southern California Keck School of Medicine. Thrilled to have you. She got her uh, degree in Liverpool and then uh, super smart, I guess, went on to get her PhD at Harvard and Oxford. So the good news is for the listeners we are not going to have to listen to Dr. Phil or Dr. Oz to give us virology reports. We've got Dr. Paula Cannon, the real deal. Welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks, Scott. It's a bit of a relief, that, isn't it, Lordy? I don't know what those people are doing right now. <laughs> yeah, no, we've got, uh, you know, we continue, we turn on the news and we listen to these people who are anything but experts in their field and trying to give us advice. So, uh, I think our listeners are really excited to get a real understanding of what we do know and what we don't know about this virus. So I really wanted to start um, really with the basics. Um, so so tell us about you know the name of the virus, the name of the disease, and, and just maybe sort of give everybody an idea as to uh, the fact that this is an RNA virus versus DNA. Not going too deep, but at least get the listeners an idea as to really what we have here. I, th I think people have probably heard by now that Corona, it's from the Latin meaning crown, and it was named, I think, um, quite cutely, actually, by um, the woman who discovered it. Um, she was a British woman, and she looked at the how the virus looked under the, the electron microscope, and it had these projections sticking out from it that looked like kind of a cartoon crown. So hence the name coronavirus. Um, not to be confused with COVID, which stands for coronavirus disease which is the name of the disease in COVID-19 because we first heard about it in 2019. 
So um, as you said, it's an RNA virus. And why that's important, um, apart from to, you know, people who teach virology, is that RNA viruses have a track record of being able to mutate quite a lot. So um, probably the granddaddy of all RNA viruses is influenza. And I think we all know that influenza changes every season. We have to keep getting a different and new influenza shot. So it's uh, it's kind of a scourge on mankind that we have vaccines against, but because of its ability to mutate, you know, it, it kind of comes back every year and, you, you know, we, we are always susceptible to getting it again. So that's the kind of uh, one of the nasty tricks that RNA viruses have. Is, is it me or does it really look kind of pretty? I, you know, I, I look at those coronavirus <laughs> pictures and it really is kind of neat looking. Okay. So Scott, I have to tell you that some of them are not actually real. You know, there's an awful lot of graphic designers sitting at home making representations of viruses. I mean, I love it, but sometimes as a virologist. <laughs> so the Kim Kardashian makeover of the coronavirus. Yeah, it's been contoured a little bit and certainly colorized. In real life, it, it probably doesn't look anything like as attractive. <laughs> well, that's, uh, well, that makes me feel better because I really don't like this virus. I think it's, you know, it's, it's not being very nice. It's very confusing. It's very coy. It doesn't really sort of allow us. I think we, we, we know less about the virus than we, than what we actually do know about it. But talk to me, you know, one of the other things that, that is really so important for people to understand is, is all of the testing and, and the terminology of the testing and what it means to be COVID negative or what it means to have an antibody positive. So just, just walk us through the, the testing process and, and, and what our listeners need to know. Sure. So there's two types of tests you can get. The first test, which is probably the most useful and accurate, is a test for the presence of the virus. So in that case, the person doing the test will take a nasopharyngeal swab. You know, they stick a, a spiky uh, plastic rod um, up your nose to the back of your throat. It's not particularly pleasant. Um, and that samples um, material from the back of your throat. And then the test that is done is called a PCR, or more accurately, an RT-PCR test. And that's really just looking for the physical presence of the virus. So those tests um, are the most accurate. Um, they're also challenging to deliver, Scott, because, you know, um, actually doing the sampling, because it is these nasopharyngeal swabs, presents challenges of both, you know, do we have the supplies? Have we got the swabs? And it's also a challenge to the people giving the test. It needs a certain amount of technical skill. And uh, it, there's also a real danger that a person who's undergoing a test will sneeze or cough in response to the test so that the test takers need to have you know, good protective gear um, to protect them taking the test. So that's the, um, that's the gold standard RT-PCR test. So, Paula, before we get to antibodies, I think one of the confusing things for, for people out there is that they say, okay, I went and had my COVID test and it was negative. So therefore I've never had the virus, but that's actually not the case. What, what it means it could very well be that you had COVID maybe three or four weeks ago. There's no viral particles that are left over for that special PCR test to identify. And the test would come back as negative. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that's absolutely correct. And even, um, you know, sort of uh, worse than that, I guess, is very early on after you've been infected, there's not enough virus to be detected to turn the test positive. And certainly after a certain number of days, you could still have virus and still be infectious, but not have enough that is picked up on the test. So there's there's a window 
when the tests will work, but it's it's a fairly limited window. Okay, so so we've got that. So people now get a better understanding about what COVID negative and positive means. But talk to us about the antibody test because I think there's a lot of discussion about that. People want their their antibody pass to be able to run around and go to the movie theater if they if they can at this point. But but walk us through the the significance, the meaning of the antibody test, and if there's any problems with that test as far as really getting the truth. Sure. So what an antibody test um, determines is, well, antibodies, which are the body's response to the presence of the virus. So the first thing to know about the antibody test is antibodies take a few days to actually start to be made. So you can have the coronavirus and still test negative on an antibody test if it's too early on. In addition, um, if you have an antibody test and you test positive, it doesn't mean that you're currently infectious or carrying the virus. It could instead mean that you had coronavirus infection a month ago or two months ago. Um, there's a great deal of excitement about the antibody test, I, I think, for two reasons. One, because compared to having the, you know, the nasal swabs, it's a much simpler test to think about administering, including the idea that people could be sent um, finger prick tests that they could administer at home quite easily, kind of like a pregnancy test, really. And therefore, people can get a result from that. So people like that idea. I mean, who wouldn't? You know, I would love to have a cupboard full of these darn tests and be kind of, you know, screening my whole family every couple of weeks. Um, but there is uh, concerns about both the sensitivity of the tests. You know, will they detect everybody who has antibodies or will there be some false negatives? As well as potentially the specificity of the tests. You know, does a positive on the test really mean you've had the coronavirus or could it instead be a fault with the test or even um, cross-reaction with some of the other coronaviruses that float around in populations that only cause mild cold-like symptoms? So there's there's some reasons to be uh, cautious about antibody tests, but I think increasingly they're going to actually play a good sort of complementary role in the arsenal of, of different types of tests that we have. All right. So I'm going to push you here a little bit and move you into some conspiracy theory. Do, 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 do. So, so, you know, there's some, there's some studies or there are at least some talk at this point circulating that this virus, yes, it did originate from a bat, but it may not have come from a wet market. It may have come from a lab in China. What do you mm -hmm. think? Well, you know, I, I think that isn't a conspiracy theory. I think what we know about this virus is, first of all, when you look at its sequence, its RNA sequence, it's kind of unremarkable as a coronavirus. It looks exactly like, you know, hundreds of other coronaviruses that we know are in animals. So the first thing I would say is, it's you know, it's not man-made. Um, and actually, as a virologist, I get offended when people say that because I'm like, we would have given it some extra superpowers. You know, we would not have made this virus if we were going to make something. So I absolutely believe the evidence is very clear. It's a naturally occurring virus. And um, the closest relatives that have it are in horseshoe bats. Now, having said that, you know, the early on people thought, well, how could a virus in a horseshoe bat have, have suddenly exploded in Wuhan? And based on our previous understanding of the original SARS outbreak in 2003, we know there that although the virus started in a bat, it spread to humans via an intermediate host called the palm civet, a cute little cat, actually. 
And that happened in these wet markets where live animals are, are present and are being sold and, 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 you know, killed for food. So I think early on, you know, everybody looked at the wet markets in Wuhan and said, is there an animal there that has got this virus from bats and is now spreading it to humans? Um, but to go back to your kind of uh, semi-conspiracy theory question, I think it's equally likely, well, maybe not equally, maybe let, let me take that back a little bit. We cannot rule out, there you go, that's what I would say, that because there is really important work happening in labs around the world, and especially in Wuhan, that are surveilling the bat, the, the bat viruses um, that are carried in the sort of animal reservoir and trying to get ahead of what what do those viruses look like? Are there any out there that could be the next SARS? You know, clearly these um, high containment labs have these viruses in them. And I think we can't rule out the possibility that there was an accidental transmission in one of those labs and that patient zero was basically, a, you know, a high containment lab worker who didn't realize that he or she was infected. Um, yeah, so it's, it's not a conspiracy theory. I think, I think most scientists would say it's a reasonable possibility to, to consider. Interesting. And there's probably, you know, the, the genetic profiling of these viruses is pretty impressive, right? You can, you can follow the signature and these tiny little mutations can happen in that RNA virus. So, but, so let's talk about that because one of the major, you know, conversations is about a vaccine. And so, what you hear mostly about this coronavirus in particular is that it's still relatively stable despite these these small mutations. Do you do you think it's reasonable that a vaccine will be available commercially by the end of the year? Is it further down the line? What do you think? Mm-hmm. So again, uh, as you just said, the good news I think is that it is a pretty stable virus despite being an RNA virus. It is not influenza. It is not changing as as it goes. The the differences we see are really quite small. So that that's good news because that means if we get a vaccine that works, you know, the vaccine should work. Um, and we won't have to kind of worry about constantly changing it every year. Um, I think the unknown question, however, is how long will immunity last? And that's the thing I have more concerns about because our prior experience with these, uh, with coronaviruses like SARS and even the the sort of less pathogenic coronaviruses, there's four of them that circulate amongst humans. Um, immunity doesn't seem to really last very long, maybe a year or two. And that's what happens with the natural infection. So, you know, I guess worst case scenario would be that we have a vaccine and it works, but it only, you know, the immunity only lasts for a year. Um, so, ah, you know, I, honestly, I would take that. I would take that and I'd be happy to stand in line and along with my annual flu shot, get my annual coronavirus shot. And, you know, maybe a, a benefit of that is people will get a flu shot at the same time. Um, but I think I think that's an open question. If, if we can get immunity from vaccines, how, how long will that last? Yeah, great. So, so one of the other major concerns or one of the things that keeps coming back up is that we're going to open up our economy. We're going to get going at this point. And then all of a sudden, here's going to come October, November, December. And the second wave of this of, of this epidemic is, is going to hit. So w- walk us through the epidemiology of that or how that occurs and, and whether or not it's truly something we need to worry about. Sure. So 
<laughs> bottom line, it is something we need to worry about. Um, and we don't know. We There's just still so much we don't know about this virus. Um, you know, the sort of different pieces that would come into play thinking about this and people, you know, are starting to model this are, you know, is the virus going to be seasonal? Some of these viruses like influenza are seasonal. Um, so maybe we, uh, because of the time of year now that we are starting to push the curve and practice social distancing, maybe if we, you know, step off that break and the virus comes back and it comes back in the fall at a time when, you know, influenza, for example, is more likely to be transmitted, maybe this virus will also have that property and we will see a, you know, the second wave might be worse because of that. Um, the other things that are unknowns that will factor into this are um, what sort of herd immunity might we have developed through this first wave of infection? Right now, it doesn't look very high, even in sort of, um, you know, communities where we know the virus is, is quite prevalent. You know, most of the estimates seem to be in the sort of one to five percent range. So that's great if you're a one to five percenter, but for the 95 percent of the rest of us, um, you know, we are still going to be susceptible. So there's really going to be very little to stop the virus doing that. Um, so these are kind of some of the unknowns. And then the other unknown, I think, is really what people's appetite is going to be for coming back to being normal. I, I don't know about you, Scott, but even if, you know, even if the Dodgers were playing here in L.A., I, I'm not sure I'm going to be running out there and getting a ticket and sitting, you know, eating a hot dog in a crowd. So I think I think people will have different responses to how much they want to engage in all this. And maybe we can find a sort of a, a happy medium whereby as a society we learn how to live differently at least for the next, you know, six to 12 months with less social distancing than we're currently having to um, put up with, but still with, you know, more hand washing, more masks, more hand sanitizer and, and smaller gatherings. I, I think that's probably the most likely scenario for the fall. Yeah, re regardless of the experts that we speak to, everyone seems to talk about the, the new normal, you know, the change in which, you know, for doctors, we talk about how our waiting rooms are going to have to be less full. I can tell you right now, I'm not getting on a JetBlue flight from Boston down to Florida with three across in a row anytime soon with every seat taken. Think about that. I mean, the airlines are really going to have to come up with a new business model or strategy in order to, so I don't think people are going to be, be moving around nearly as much as we used to in the new, in the new process. So, just, you know, herd immunity is one of the things that we hear a lot about. Can you just explain that for the listeners so they have a better understanding? Sure. So so this refers to the idea that um, as an infectious disease is going through a population and or vaccination, um, you get to kind of a critical point where enough people have been exposed or vaccinated and are therefore immune to the virus that, that basically the virus can't spread. There's just not enough susceptible hosts. So this is really why vaccination works. Um, and the current estimates I've seen for having an for herd immunity having an impact on coronaviruses, we'd probably have to get to 60 or 70 percent of people either having had the virus and recovered so they have antibodies or being vaccinated so that they have antibodies. Um, so, you know, being at one to five percent, you know, woohoo, that's not the virus isn't going to even skip a beat um, with those numbers. And I think. Um, while herd immunity is 
definitely a desirable outcome. The path to getting there may not be desirable if it requires 60 to 70 percent of our population to be exposed to this virus because the attendant loss of life and, and morbidity is, I think most people would, would say, is completely unacceptable. Yeah. So, you know, the other thing that we hear a lot about is sort of this mass hysteria that the situation in New York and for example, and Detroit, for example, which is another very hard hit city, it's just a matter of time before that spreads to Washington and Baltimore and Richmond and Chicago. And so it doesn't seem to be playing out that way. It seems like there's these hot spots, and now they're saying that Boston's a hot spot. But to be perfectly honest with you, our, hasp- our hospitals are half full, um, and we're not seeing that crazy surge. It definitely increased. But so, do people need to worry about that? Is that is that sort of a, a, something that we need to wor- be concerned about? Sure. I mean, it really, you know, there's so many pieces to this. The uh, the, the the steepness of a curve, the, the height of the peak kind of matters in terms of what the sort of healthcare capabilities are for a given city or community. You know, you'll know more about this. And, and also in, in different communities, the underlying health conditions, especially poverty, so that, um, you know, a fairly affluent um, part of the United States with good healthcare capacity may seem to handle this and may handle this better than you know, a rural community um, with much more limited access to healthcare and more underlying health conditions that will impact the type of disease people get. I mean, I, I think we are going to see differences in different communities. And the trick is going to be to kind of think about what are the underlying factors that are driving those differences and to the best of our ability, try and um, copy or instigate the types of um, changes we need in, in different communities as waves of this infection are going to be spreading through different cities and different states. Yeah, we've been we've been hearing a lot. We we have conversations with orthopedic surgeons across the the country and getting a sense and some some are, are literally working in emergency rooms and others are literally doing nothing and their hospitals are not, you know, over, overrun with COVID at all. So I think uh, Professor Retziff from MIT Sloan said it best. He said, you know, we're going to have to do a lot of testing, do sur- you know, surveillance to be able to identify the people that are, are sh- shredding virus. You got to protect your, your elderly in particular. And then, uh, and then hopefully we'll learn more and more about the virus as we go. Yeah, I think, Having information, having data, no big surprise, means that we can then implement the best practices. We're learning on the fly with this virus, but it's a little distressing how much of what we're doing is pure guesswork at the moment. As we get that extra information and that data, and you're right, testing is going to be so critical, and public health officials and hospital uh, workers and doctors and everybody can then say, well, okay, you know, given what it's like this week, Here's what we should be doing. But without that data, we're just flying blind. Well, I can't thank you enough, uh, Paula, for being on the show to really get uh, an expert to really give us the information direct to our listeners rather than through the, the, the lens of the media. So we really greatly appreciate that. And uh, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. So uh, this is Dr. Scott Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro, host of the Ortho Show. Till next time.